um, but people are are getting riled up. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I mean, the public, they're saying like, yeah, you know, we want our jobs back. We want manufacturing jobs back. And, you know, when people are suffering, it's easy to look at yeah. just the the most what looks like the most logical point. Exactly. Right. Like this exactly. is like, oh, well, this is what's wrong. The politician so this is what promising we need. candy. Uh, promising favors, promising, right. uh, I'm going to help you. But they're uh, going to help each other and the crony and that's, partners, that's really, yeah, right? So, yeah, so you have a, a public narrative that says, oh, all this is on your behalf. And then what's really going on is the bags of cash being passed back and forth underneath the table. I sat down with Philip Magnus, Senior Research Faculty and F.A. Hayek Chair in Economics and Economic History at AIER. By tracing the history of tariffs, we see a repeating pattern. Opportunistic rent-seeking, strained international relationships, and a government that often interferes with natural economic exchanges. As history warns, when goods cease to cross borders, armies soon follow. MAGA, America first, economic nationalism, protectionism, and basically this idea that's that we hear more and more nowadays, this political idea that we need to put America first and we need to protect American jobs. We need to prote uh, protect American trade, right. uh, American manufacturing. Uh, and so there's a lot of political promises that are made on these kinds of statements, right? And that, that happens to be on the right. But I think that there's also protectionism and tariffs on the left as well. well very much so. Uh, and I've often said like, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump converge on this issue. Uh, they're both in favor of protectionism. And Biden himself has also continued some of the problematic Trump uh, tariffs. But uh, you know, to jump in, a tariff is fundamentally a form of taxation. And it's one of the oldest forms of taxation. It's uh, the original way we funded our government uh, when it was set up in 1787. But it also has another component to it because uh, you can tax to raise money, which is the, uh, the, the conventional function, the public finance function of any tax that you pass, whether that's on imported goods, which is what a tariff is, whether it's a sales tax that you put on uh, something at the grocery store, an excise tax uh, on uh, liquor and wine and, and beer, uh, tobacco, things like that. Or you can have an income tax, which is direct tax out of your paycheck. Right. Uh, so they're all forms of taxation. But uh, taxation can do multiple different things. One is it can raise revenue. The other is it can penalize an activity, try to deter an activity from occurring. And that's the purpose of a protective tariff is to uh, raise the price of imported goods so high that purchasers in the United States no longer get their goods from abroad. They switch over to a domestic competitor, a producer of the same good who's then allowed to charge a higher price. Right. It's going to cost more. Let's say you're going to buy a T-shirt that's made in America compared to a T-shirt that might be made in Bangladesh. Right. Right. So that's right. kind of a basic example of that. Yeah. And we also know from our global economy, I mean, the, this is a, a basic precept of market economics is that you have comparative advantages in the production of things. There's a reason they don't make fine wine in Scotland, right. but they do make it in France. Right. Uh, that, that could be product variation. Uh, could could be a reason. There's also uh, different price levels. Uh, it just turns out that certain countries and certain parts of the world can make the same good much more cost effectively uh, than we can in the U.S. And vice versa, the U.S. can make certain things in more cost effective ways than other countries. Right. And, you know, this is something that people can think about as well when they think about their iPhones or whatever exactly. their, their gear is, their technological gear. And I, I think that there was something about microchips yeah. at a certain point where they wanted to raise tariffs on microchips or something like that. Am I so right? That, and uh, the interesting thing on that, when you got a phone like this, uh, I can't look at this phone and say, I know exactly the one country this came from. Mm -hmm. It has thousands of little pieces in it that are sourced from all over the world. And those uh, pieces themselves are made of, of raw materials that almost certainly didn't come from the company or the country where they were uh, assembled. Uh, I mean, this is a global product. Yeah, yeah. And we can't think of this and say, oh, this is a... Uh, uh, an iPhone from America or an Android from America. Um, it's actually an Android or an iPhone or uh, any other piece of technology that's from probably dozens of different locations around the world. It's like iPencil. Exactly. Right? That, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so if you have iPencil, uh, this is it's a book or an essay that talks about basically just that. But let's say you imagine iPencil in the scenario of Make America Great Again. Yeah. 
where it's like, we're going to produce this pencil from A to Z in America. What would the cost of a pencil be compared to what we get it for now? Well, right? Exactly. I mean, it's, it's the difference from specialization on all the different components uh, that go into putting that pencil together. Uh, you, you know, you have the, the graphite mine, you have the uh, uh, the mm. lumber to cut down to make the uh, uh, the wood. Uh, you have to extract rubber from somewhere. Uh, th those are just the three main core pieces of it. But uh, it's a very complex product. And if I were to set out tomorrow and say, I'm going to make all of this stuff from raw material, uh, I mean, what would I do? I could go in the woods back there and maybe cut down a tree. Then I'd have to go find graphite somewhere. Uh, have to go find a rubber tree somewhere else. That'd be a very long, labor-intensive process, and it would probably be extremely costly. And I'd I'd get a pencil that didn't function all that well. Right. In the end. Right. Right. So Whereas, this... yeah, you know, you you have multiple components coming from all over the world. You could actually get a very complex product put together through specialization of all the different tasks that are made in its construction, mm -hmm. and get it for very cheap. So if we actually kind of think <laughs> back to America's founding and right yeah. before that, because that's what you studied. So there were these same kind of debates going on then that Absolutely. we hear now. Absolutely. So and, what's and that story? Is, so this is something that's come up. And when Trump has started arguing for tariffs and Bernie Sanders and Biden to some degree, uh, the NatCons, National Conservatives, uh, they've all picked up and pointed back to the American founding as the supposed precedent. Hmm. And their narrative is that America became a rich, industrialized country because we had high tariffs in the 19th and early 20th century. And this in some years, it coincided and overlapped with uh, times of economic growth. Other years, not so much, but uh, they're, they're kind of fast and loose with the dates on when they make these claims. Uh, but the gist of the story is that uh, because tariffs existed at this time and overlapped with uh, American industrialization, therefore tariffs were the cause of America becoming a very wealthy country uh, and caused us to become self-sufficient and propped up American industry uh, by penalizing foreign competitors. Uh, this is the old story that uh, has been trumpeted and, and uh, trotted out every time tariffs come back onto the agenda. But it's a, it's a story that many people are not familiar with today because for the probably the second half of the 20th century uh, and really into the first couple decades of the 21st century, we've been in a period of relatively stable trade liberalization. Hmm. Not just in the U.S., worldwide. Mm -hmm. So since about World War II to the present day, overall barriers to trade have been on a downward trajectory worldwide. And it's made goods a lot more uh, affordable. Uh, it, it means you can get your phones that are sourced from places all over yeah, the world. Yeah, and anybody can buy one now, yeah, right? Like it's exactly. not this, this uh, luxury item that you have to really have a lot of money to put away for or that you have to be wealthy to purchase, right? But actually, that's an interesting point because so there's been this kind of opening up, this kind of liberal liberalization of trade over the past few decades. Um, and that is basically do also or, or intertwined with globalization. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. But maybe what's happening now, is it possible that because globalization has become kind of a pejorative? It's become under attack. Right. And it, it's like the boogeyman for, uh, so capitalism is always blamed for other things that are not really capitalist economic transactions, but get mm -hmm. associated with it. Right. Or sometimes they say neoliberalism, globalization. These are throwaway buzzwords uh, that basically mean stuff I don't like. Yeah. Well, they'll say like the World Economic Forum, they're the globalists. Exactly. Right? Like that's, exactly. and that's become but, the pejorative. But, but if you look at the World Economic Forum and they're like the advocates of central planning on an international level, uh, which is the antithesis of market exchange and uh, free market capitalism. So they're, they're, they kind of play a sleight of hand here right. with the terminology. Right. And I'm glad that you pointed that out because I see that a lot. I see that a lot in people who tend to be liberty oriented, yeah. you know, and they want more freedom and they want to get away from all of that control, but they tend to, to put globalization in the same bag. And so maybe that's why as well, um, it's being used politically on the right. Exactly. Right now as a way to kind of make this new case for yeah. tariffs. Well, and it's given elements of the political right an avenue to seize the tools of the state to try to use them the way that the political left does. I mean, the political left has been associated with economic intervention for decades. Mm -hmm. That's been their thing since the New Deal, if not earlier. Uh, 
political right is say, well, well, wait a minute, what if we get the tools of the state and rather than using them on welfare expenditures and using them on uh, uh, social programs like the left does, what if we use them to prop up industry? What if we uh, give advantages to American manufacturers? And this is where the history comes in because they turn back to similar arguments that were made in the 19th and, and even 18th century in favor of government uh, taking on this proactive role of economic management. And that would be uh, Alexander Hamilton and uh, Henry Clay. So exactly. before we go to them, <laughs> let's go back to James Madison. Yep. Okay, yep. so you write here in a kind of a summary of your chapter, James Madison viewed tariffs as necessary to raise revenue. Yep. Because, again, there were no taxes right. at the founding of America. So this was the idea. There's no how, national tax system. Right. So how are you going to um, have a military? How are you going to pay off the debt from this war that they just fought? Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, before a national tax system existed, they were basically going to each of the states and saying, this is your share of the tax burden. Uh, you figure out how to tax your population and you send it to us. Oh. And some states would say, OK, here, this is what we owe. We pay. Others are... are Wait a minute. We want to renegotiate the deal. Uh, right. So, so there's there's no real mechanism uh, to have revenue at the national government, and even before the constitutions formed, they recognize this as a problem. So, in 1781 and in 1783, there are two major pushes to establish what was effectively a, a uniform national tariff system. They called it the Impost Bill, and what they would say is. Uh, well, the, 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 the U.S. government would assess, let's say, a 5% fee on every good that crosses the border. And it basically functions like a sales tax. It just is assessed at the border. Mm -hmm. And they do that because it, it's easier to collect tariffs at the border than, uh, especially in that time when you don't have uh, uh, wide information networks to uh, uh, collect taxes at the cash register, for example. Right. But you can set up a customs house in every port. And then as the goods are being loaded off the ship, it's a very convenient place to assess the tax. You do it at a low rate, you bring in revenue to the government, and then you can pay for these basic functions. Right, and 5%. I mean, that's a much, much different figure than right. when we think about modern-day tariffs and modern-day taxes exactly. as well, right? Okay, so then James Madison, he was caught off guard exactly. by early attempts to enact tariffs for industry protection. So yeah. what happened there? So right after the Constitution's ratified, Madison is elected to the House of Representatives and he enters into Congress. And one of the very first bills that's ever debated on the floor of Congress, I think it was like uh, House Bill number two or number three or something, uh, he writes it and it's, uh, it's the first tax act of the United States. It's less than a page long, you know, compare that to the income tax code today. And the gist of the bill is that the, uh, the imposts that will be assessed on goods that enter into the United States shall be blank percent. And he put it out for debate and says, well, uh, we need to have a discussion here. What's the proper rate to set it at that will meet our revenue needs? And, and we know James Madison, is, uh, he's the co-author of the Federalist Papers. Mm -hmm. He's very, very acutely aware of special interest politics. I mean, his major argument in the Federalist Papers is how do we use a system of checks and balances to counteract the faction, to counteract the ability of special interests to seize control of the government and use it for their own ends. Right. And that's and that's important because I've been doing some reading on uh, the history of the Roman Empire yeah. and then the medieval church and their reign and then kind of the birth of the nation state. Yeah. And, and what I was reading was that right before the birth of the nation state, there was a lot of special interest groups in a way or like powerful conglomerates who were able to um, exercise a lot of power. Well, they, they right basically get themselves enmeshed with legislature. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, it's just like lobbyists today, they want favors carved out for them. Uh, they've existed since probably before recorded history, this type yeah. of behavior exists every time the government offers uh, an opportunity. And Madison gets caught off guard because he puts this bill up there and he thinks it's gonna be a really simple debate uh, they'll just say, well, maybe it should be 4% or 6%, and then they settle on 5 and they pass the bill, and now there's revenue coming into the government. I uh, thought that'd be the extent of it. Right. And what happens is uh, he proposes it, uh, then one other representative, uh, as, uh, Elias Boudinot from New, New Jersey, uh, raises his hand and says, I, I second Mr. Madison's bill. 
uh, I think in keeping with the pa- uh, the previous attempt that we tried to do this under the Articles of Confederation, it should be 5%, uh, something to that effect. And they thought, okay, well, that's what they're going to uh, proceed with. And then uh, all hell breaks loose. And all hell broke loose because uh, as Representative Fitzsimmons from Western Pennsylvania uh, raises his hand and basically, I'm paraphrasing, he says, uh, Mr. Speaker, uh, all this is uh, fine and a good purpose to get revenue to the government, but uh, you know, we have iron in my home district, and the iron industry is, is very much in its infancy, and it's facing competition from those uh, the Brits across the sea who uh, have a very established industry, and because their industry is uh, much more mature than ours, they can undersell us, and uh, uh, if we want to be a strong nation, we need to cultivate this uh, this industry back in my district. So maybe if you tax everything else at 5%, but I'm going to propose an amendment, and he'll say something like, certain iron goods should be taxed at 10%, and others at 12%, and 15%, and this is all to serve to the benefit of the iron industry. And he makes a uh, like a, a patriotic appeal. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm helping my home district. Mm-hmm. We just fought a war against Britain. We don't want to help them out by engaging in commerce with them. They right. should give the uh, commerce to us, even though it's going to be more expensive. And Fitzsimmons makes the proposal. And what do you think goes through the mind of every other representative that's sitting on the floor? They start thinking, "Oh, well, I have an industry like that in my district as well. Uh, right. I have." Uh, sheep, uh, a sheep industry where they're, they're making uh, wool, uh, collecting wool from sheep in my home district. So maybe we need to tax that. And the other guy says, "Well, I own the textile mill that uh, processed the, the the wool into uh, uh, cloth textiles that we sell, and we face competition from Europe as well. So maybe we need uh, a protective rate." And what was supposed to be this very quick bill turns into a multi-week debate. And we even have letters from James Madison where he's writing both his friends and uh, when he writes back to his wife, he says, uh, he's shaking his head, I'm still stuck in Washington, D.C. because they aren't uh, settling on the damn tariff rate. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They're trying to each... Um, so that's kind of like the beginning of rent-seeking. It is absolutely the beginning of rent-seeking. And what is (laughs) rent-seeking? So rent-seeking is the process by which private interests try to use government to manipulate the rules of exchange, the rules of transaction, uh, rules of human behavior in ways that deliver something of value to them, allows it to capture uh, something of value to them. Right. And that could be a direct appropriation. It could be a regulation that penalizes someone I'm in competition with and therefore gives me an advantage. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could be a tax benefit to me that my competitor doesn't get. Right. But it's the use of the government uh, to alter what would otherwise be a natural exchange, money trading hands for goods, Mm -hmm. in a way that gives somebody a favor. Right. And when this occurs, uh, you know, at least in theory, a rent seeker is willing to expend quite a significant amount of money obtaining the rent. Uh, on lobbies, uh, lobbying, it might even be bribes. And right. in the 19th and early 20th century, bribes become synonymous with tariff bill revisions uh, because it, it's the main area where uh, you know money could ex- exchange hands on the floor of Congress to get a favorable rate. These are extremely complex bills that start to emerge. So we went almost overnight from Madison's one-sentence uh, uh, single-page tax bill to uh, a scroll, a scroll, <laughs> and it actually starts out fairly slowly because uh, uh, even though the rent seekers arrive in 1789 and start making these amendments, uh, they're relatively tame amendments, and it'd be like uh, we're going to tax iron uh, nails at eight percent instead of five percent, and we'll we'll tax uh, this other good at ten percent instead of five percent. Uh, so it's small carve outs. So it's kind of like testing the water. Right. But Pandora's box has been opened. Pandora's box was opened by this bill in 1789, and it's just off to the races from there. So the next major step, Alexander Hamilton enters the fray. And, of course, we all know him. Uh, Bob Wright's going to be mad at me uh, because Hamilton's his hero, Aaron Burr's mine. We've got this little thing going back and forth. Uh, But but I I would characterize Hamilton as a protectionist. Mm. He's not as bad as later protectionists, but that's a very low bar. Um, Hamilton, of the major founding fathers, 
is uh, really the only one that subscribes to an economic theory of protectionism in a very overt way. And we have this in his letters going back to the 1770s. Uh, he's associating it with the cause of the American Revolution. He says we can uh, go it alone as a country and have autarkic internal commerce, uh, which is a really radical position. He, need, he does temper that down, but uh, throughout the 1780s, he is still floating ideas uh, that harken back to an older school of economic thought called mercantilism. Right, and okay, the, uh, yes. So the idea here is that you use the tools of government um, not to rent-seek, but to strategically advance certain industries and forms of commerce that are thought to be in the uh, national interest. Okay, okay. And in 1791, he writes this report for Congress. He's the the Treasury Secretary at the time. And the report uh, basically walks through the theoretical case of why a country should consider adopting tariff protectionism and other associated uh, uh, policy interventions for strategic reasons. Mm-hmm. And you hear the litany of all the arguments that are associated with uh, tariffs today. Uh, some of it, so he says, well, our competitors abroad are not trading fairly because they manipulate their markets. Therefore, we should uh, be able to ourselves. Right. We do hear that a lot today. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's the same rhetoric. Yeah. That's still with us. Uh, he also says, uh, you know, we're a relatively young country, and there are industries of strategic and vital importance to our uh, our growth. We need to help them in their infancy. Uh, so it's called the infant industry argument. Right. And, it's a, and the classic example was the the, uh, the iron manufacturer in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Well, but, okay, so Phil, all of these arguments to many people will sound good. Yes. You yeah. could say, how could you argue with that? Exactly. You know, like they, they sound, okay, we're putting our people first. We're putting our country first. They sound, as you said, patriotic. Yeah. Um, but obviously this is something that I think you personally are against. Yes, so it turns out that the math behind it doesn't work. Right. Okay. And it sounds great if you work in the iron industry mm-hmm. and you get a tariff. And I, I guess a way to think about this. Uh, so suppose that Congress passes a tariff on the successor to the iron industry. It's the steel industry today, which is constantly going to the legislature to ask for these types of favors. Uh, it's also a bit of an indictment of this infant industry argument because if you think uh, iron was an infant industry in 1789 and its successor is still asking for the same policies over 200 years later, mm. the baby never grew up. Right, right. Uh, which is, is kind of fascinating. Yeah. And it, and it turns out there are several other uh, examples that are just the, the, the exact same thing. The early tariff recipients are still the tariff recipients today. Uh, but think about it this way. Hmm. If you work in the steel industry and they pass a tariff uh, that penalizes your competitors abroad, raises the price that you can charge for your own U.S. manufactured good hardy steel that's in our national vital interest, uh, it means you start making bank. Your company starts making bank. Mm -hmm. Uh, It captures the market that used to come from abroad at much cheaper rates. But who's paying for that? Is the next question. Turns out it's anyone and everyone who's ever used a product that has steel in it. The consumers. Consumers. Right. Uh, the fact that we're helping out the steel industry, it may uh, uh, ensure uh, better employment and uh, better uh, uh, profitability for uh, a sector of the economy that maybe employs like 50 or 100,000 people. But then you have 330 million Americans. We all use steel. Right. That means my car is now uh, more More expensive expensive. if I want to buy that next year. The toaster oven, if I purchase a new toaster oven at Walmart, it's more expensive if I purchase a new refrigerator. And that's every single consumer in America. Mm -hmm. But think about it this way. You get a very concentrated benefit that goes to that one industry, the recipient of the tariff. And they're making tangible money. But... You and I and every other American that has to buy a new toaster oven, uh, maybe we pay 10 cents more for the steel price of the toaster. Is that going to uh, get you up in arms where you're going to march down to Washington, D.C. <laughs> and say, uh, uh, my toaster is more expensive this year. I demand a tax rebate. No. So what you have is very concentrated benefits from the tariff to the industry that it helps and very diffuse costs. Mm across the entirety of the economy. Mm -hmm. 
all consumers. And some of this also concentrate in other ways, so the auto manufacturers don't like it when the steel manufacturers get tariffs because that's an input. Right. Uh, it's one of the raw materials. So sometimes they can form a coalition to push back on it. Right. Well, this is what happens, too, with the example that you gave earlier, is that as soon as you have everybody raise their hand, exactly. they're going to have conflicting interests, right? E exactly. So they start cutting deals with each other. Mm. And it'll be the uh, uh, the guy in Vermont uh, from the cheese-making district and the guy in Pennsylvania from the, the, the steel-making district. They'll say, they'll say, you know, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You vote for my, uh, my cheese tariff, I'll vote for your your steel tariff right. and suddenly they got a deal right. and they all log roll it together and next thing you know you've got these massive complex bills so what starts it sounds like this this patriotic thing that's on the on the benefit of america ends up being a whole bunch of political favors and when you run the calculations you run the math on it the costs that are imposed on consumers and the economy at large exceed the benefit even though that benefit is concentrated to the one industry Right, right. And and also, I guess the same thing can be said for things that you're importing, mm -hmm. right? So, like, let's say you want to eat some Boursin cheese, but, yep. like, this is going to cost you 7 or $8. Because there's a punitive tariff on it. Right. Yeah. So you're actually able to have less choice within your kind exactly. of range of, of your so, budget. So, so my value as a consumer mm -hmm. is enhanced by the availability of choice. And, and, and right now we're just talking about the domestic effects of the tariff. Well, what happens if uh, we put a tariff on British goods and Britain says, uh-uh, that's not fair. We're going to slap a tariff back on you in retaliation. Or the European Union and the United States, they do this back and forth a lot today. Mm. Uh, and it's always on, uh, uh, they pick goods that they target. So like French cheese gets targeted and French wine gets targeted. Right. Scotch whiskey, uh, American bourbon. Uh, and it becomes kind of this tit for tat back and forth of a trade war uh, that's purely retaliatory, and the people that are harmed by it are the consumers because our, our our choice range is reduced and our expenses go up to get the same thing. That means that I'm worse off, you're worse off. Now, this is also kind of tangential to the chapter that you wrote, um, but is it also true that when you have uh, more liberalization in trade and less tariffs and you have less of that kind of... Um, let's say the U.S. trying to punish China by imposing this kind of tariff or whatever it is, using it as this kind yeah. of tactic. Um, do you have more peace in the world yeah. when you have freer trade, when you have people who are like, okay, we need to cooperate with each other? Um, is that part of the puzzle well, as well? Yeah, there's an old saying is when goods cease to cross borders, armies soon follow. And, uh, you know, it's been attributed to a variety of, uh, of sources, but I think there's some wisdom in that, mm -hmm. that saying. Uh, what, what I can do and I do in the article is I, I point to some tangible examples in U.S. and world history where in this supposed golden age of tariffs that Trump and the MAGA people and Bernie Sanders all point toward, mm -hmm. uh, tariffs become a major obstacle to uh, U.S. international relations because the protectionists at, at various points in the 19th century and early 20th century, they get the upper hand. And the two that I, I'll point out directly. Yeah. So one's on the eve of the American Civil War. As the country is splitting up, the southern states are seceding, the protectionists in Congress got very opportunistic. And this is like down to the week before Abraham Lincoln's inaugurated, they look around and they see, well, a bunch of senators have resigned and left from the southern states and everything's in chaos and everyone's focused on the uh, the, the union being dissolved and maybe a war is coming mm -hmm. and uh, there's a, um, a protectionist senator uh, from Rhode Island by the name of James Fowler Simmons and he says, ah, I have my opportunity during this chaos, I'm going to go cut all the deals that I need uh, to get uh, my tariff bill through. So he, re he uh, removed a procedural block that had been put in in the previous session mm -hmm. against the advance of something called the Morrill Tariff Act. Uh, Justin Morrill of Vermont is the uh, the major figure sponsor of it. He's a protectionist as well. And it was a, an attempt to hike the rates up uh, for, uh, they, they actually thought it was going to be like a stimulus package in response to the panic of 1857. So they had an economic downturn, and this is the way they did stimulus packages at the time, as well, you give out favors to everybody. Oh. Yeah. 
So this bill had been lingering since about 1857, early 1858, but it hit all these legislative obstacles. Suddenly in the chaos of the eve of the Civil War, the obstacles are out of the way and the protectionists uh, take advantage of that moment and they drive the bill through on the eve of Lincoln's inauguration. What has two effects. One is it jacks the tariff rates up very, very high and kind of sets that as the stage for... To what, to what kind of percents? Oh, so, so uh, it's a variable tariff rate. Uh, there had been a downward liberalization going on since 1846 right. where they were trying to scale things down from uh, a typical good would have been taxed at maybe 20 or 25 percent and it tried to reduce it to 15 and then 10 percent. Uh, so depending on the good. Back towards five. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Try, and trying to condense the schedule into something that's more revenue oriented. But what the Burrell tariff does, it comes in and it'll tax things at the equivalent of something like 70, 80, 100, 120 percent if that was the favor that was given out. Wow. So ridiculously high punitive rates. So you get the high tariff on the eve of the Civil War. And the second thing, it infuriates Great Britain because they see this as a retaliatory measure that's targeting them. Hmm. And if you think about this moment in history, Great Britain was uh, mostly aligned with the anti-slavery cause. Great Britain had uh, abolished slavery three decades earlier. They had committed their navy to stamping out the international slave trade. Yeah. Uh, by all intents and purposes, they should have seen the American Civil War and said, well, we know what side we're on. And whether they join the war or not, uh, they at least give the, the economic and moral support uh, for the Union cause. Right. Uh, that's what naturally would have happened. And in fact, we got a letter from Richard Cobden to uh, Charles Sumner, U.S. Senator, uh, basically saying, uh, what's going on, guys? Why did y'all just pass this punitive tariff against us? And the problem it's created is it has destroyed all goodwill with Great Britain hmm. on the eve of this war that's breaking out. Hmm. And now, instead of us being willing to at least provide you moral support, if not come to your aid, uh, as this war progresses, it actually fostered Confederate sympathies in Great Britain and induces, it's one of the major factors that induces the uh, British government to take an official position of neutrality in the American Civil War. Well, there you go. That comes back to the comment you just said earlier, yeah. right? I mean, it's these things have bigger effects than we Absolutely. can think about. Like we think about cronyism and rent seeking and all of those kinds of things uh, as something that's kind of isolated. Yeah. Um, but those are the kind of conditions that... We're, we're working in a, in a global economy. Yeah. And it's one of the great diplomatic blunders of the 19th century. It basically set the uh, the Union cause off with, uh, with its hands tied behind its back because it's alienated a significant player in the international community. And now Britain is willing to look the other way when smugglers run the blockade. So it hurt the relationship It absolutely there. hurt the relationship. Uh, so you got that huge blunder. And then you have another one at the outset of the Great Depression. So remember 1857, the Morrill Tariff Act is the stimulus package to uh, uh, try to weather the recession? Yeah. Well, this theory continued forward, and we still hear it today in some of the national conservatives who say this is our stimulus package mm -hmm. to weather tough economic times. Uh, stock market crashes in 1929. And there had already been a tariff bill, uh, tariff revision proceeding through the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. Mm -hmm. It's eventually passed a year later. Uh, but what happens is the uh, uh, the stock market crash, the onset of the depression, which starts out as it's a it's a uh, tepid recession. We don't know exactly how severe it's going to be, uh, but early on. The political pressure starts to emerge. Well, do something. Do something to counteract this uh, uh, this recession. Uh, clamoring for the government to step in and save us. Mm -hmm. And the counter-recessionary policy is they looked back to the 19th century and said, well, we did all these tariff things before. Let's do that again. And they work so well, they right? That, so was well. Well, yeah. that was their argument. Well, that was their argument because it's post hoc ergo propter hoc. Therefore, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's a false causality. So a free-for-all opens on the floor of Congress. And there are reporters that uh, that witnessed like bags of cash being passed under the table. And it's just like the same thing from 1789, but on steroids. It's every single interest that has a stake in the tariff game shows up in the lobby and says, well, a recession's starting, it's underway, uh, but I need protection for uh, uh, the gadget that's made in my district back at home. 
I need protection for my company. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't care about all these other companies, but uh, Congressman so-and-so, can you make sure that this treated the proper way in the tariff schedule? And you get this multi-hundred page bill that in fine minute detail specifies all these favorable rates on everything. And it passes because it's the stimulus. It was the, the thing to do to the weather the uh, recession. And what do you think happens? First off, it jacks up prices on everybody. During, you During know, the this, middle of the, yeah. of, the, of the Great Depression. Yeah. So consumers are hit in the gut by this new tax law. Mm -hmm. Second thing, it infuriates every single major trading partner that the United States has. Hmm. And they turn around and say, well, if you're going to tax us, we're going to tax you in return. Oh, gosh. So yeah. it set off a trade war. Third thing it does, because the way that tariffs operate, you know, they raise costs in the domestic economy. Mm -hmm. uh, and typical business, if, if, if your inputs, your raw materials go up, you build that into the price of the product you sell and try yeah. to pass it on to somebody else. Right. And a lot of that can be absorbed. I mean, it's it's not economically productive in the sense because it's still paying higher costs. Someone still has to pay it. But you as a company can insulate yourself by trying to pass off as much of the tax onto somebody else as you can. We call this tax incidents. Right. But tax incidents becomes a major problem at the border. Because if you're an exporter, you can't go to the rest of the world and say, I'm going to pass my tax incidents on to you. Uh, you have to take the the price that uh, goods are trading for on the open seas. Right. Uh, so right. We, we call this the symmetry effect of trade. So a tax on imports effectively becomes a tax on exporters. Hmm. Outside of the Great Depression, America's largest export was the agriculture sector. It's wheats and grains and corns, uh, most of it going over to Europe, other parts of the world. And the agriculture sector was not in the best of economic health even before the recession set in. The obliteration of trade, because of this import tariff, also killed off the export trade. It means farmers were hit the hardest at the outset of the Great Depression. And you look at the map, where were all the bank runs? There were on, uh, rural Midwestern banks that farmers couldn't make their mortgage payment on. And then the bank's uh, stock of money was basically depleted. Wow. And, and you have a spiraling economic crisis. So Smoot-Hawley is such a disastrous blunder that it obliterates basically the entire global trading system in the course of about three years. So this is really important, again, to keep in context the big picture. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and this is why it's really interesting to study history. This is one of the reasons, I think, yeah. um, one of the motivations, you know, to study it for its own sake, but also to look at the environment that we're in now. Absolutely. And say, you know, when you have this kind of rising sentiment of like a call for all of this kind of, you know, protectionism and tariffs and putting America first and making America great again, you know, rather than making America free again. Right, right. <laughs> or America making, free I again. think uh, Sam Gray wrote an article, it was uh, make, make trade free again. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, so, um, but people are, are getting riled up. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I mean, the public, they're saying like, yeah, you know, we want our jobs back. We want manufacturing jobs back. And, you know, when people are suffering, it's easy to look at yeah. just the the most what looks like the most logical point. Exactly. Right. Like this exactly. is like, oh, well, this is what's well, wrong. The politician so this is what promising candy. Uh, promising favors, promising, right. uh, I'm going to help you. But they're um, going to help each other and the crony and partners, really, yeah. right? Yeah, so you have a, a public narrative that says, oh, all this is on your behalf. And then what's really going on is the bags of cash being passed back and forth underneath the table. Uh, what's really going on are, are, are bribes and crony deals to help out special interests. Right. Uh, and this has been the history of trade. Uh, you know, that they've created kind of this false historical narrative, uh, the NatCons, and uh, it, this dates somewhat to about the 1990s when Pat Buchanan started making some of these arguments, but it's it's flowed forward into so some people of the Trump administration, uh, Robert Lighthizer, who was the U.S. trade representative, has been now the public right. face of this. Right. Uh, and what they've done is they've rewritten American economic history where the claim is that uh, tariffs made America strong in the 19th century and they need to be seized upon and weaponized again. Uh, and this is going to be the solution to all of our economic woes. Uh, any historian that has done a deep dive and studied this material uh, knows it's basically propaganda. 
And this is where, uh, as, as I go into the whole history in the article, mm-hmm. uh, Henry Clay was the U.S. senator from Kentucky uh, that's kind of credited as the popularizer of this idea. So Alexander Hamilton lays out some of the framework, but Hamilton dies early. Uh, he dies in the duel in 1804 with Aaron Burr. Right. Uh, and so we, we don't really get uh, the full story of what Hamilton's views would have been at the end of his life. Because mm-hmm. uh, his, his life has ended prematurely. So unlike most of the other members of the founding generation, he does not uh, persist in politics to uh, uh, a state of maturity. See his ideas play yeah, out as like well. Jefferson's president by then and still has... Uh, a couple decades of a career left. James Madison has yet to become president and is mm-hmm. going to succeed Jefferson. Uh, Hamilton's dead, so we don't know what he would have done next. Right. Uh, he did tilt in a protectionist direction, but uh, some curious events happened. Uh, so about two decades later, in 1824, Henry Clay, who's this young upstart senator from Kentucky, uh, is dabbling around in some of these ideas of protectionism, and he gives a speech where he proposes says what we need to do uh, free trade is the British system we need an American system and the American system is to uh, uh, I mean its basic purpose is to use a combination of tariffs and debt financing through a central bank hmm. and public works infrastructure projects they call them internal improvements all sounds very familiar yeah <laughs> I mean we still have this this type of uh, uh, policy that's being argued for today. So he lays out this agenda of mm. all these things that he wants to do. And it's basically asking the government to come in and centrally plan uh, how the U.S. economy will develop. And wow. it's subsidies. It's like, I'm going to pay off your district because uh, we'll help uh, the federal government will help dig a canal. Uh, and another district, they'll help uh, harbor improvements to uh, upgrade the dock system. And eventually it becomes as the railroads uh, uh, enter into the fray, mm. uh, that technology comes along as, well, let's subsidize the railroads. And in doing so, we build a network of infrastructure that supports internal domestic industry that's protected from competition abroad because of these high tariffs that we've imposed. Right. So. Clay throws this out on the table. He gives this grand speech, very eloquent speech in favor of it, says this is going to be the solution to all of our economic woes, and it's going to make America the leading power. So he's economic. the original MAGA. He, he is the original MAGA, <laughs> which is why they, the, I guess they, they all have rallied around him. Right. And this is presented as if it's like the true American economic history that was shoved aside by globalization. And and uh, people like Lighthizer are saying, well, we're just writing the course, bringing us back to our roots in Henry Clay. Right. They're saying that this is what the American founding is about. But you took a quote at the beginning of your yep. chapter um, on the indictment of King George III. Yes. From the Declaration of Independence, yes. which says... For cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, we're indicting. So so we we declared independence because our trade was disrupted. Because our trade was not free. Exactly. exactly. Right. And it it gets even better than that because Clay gives his speech. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison are still alive. Hmm. They're both in retirement. uh, So they're both out of office. They both read copies of the speech. Uh, It comes out of Congress. They print it and it reaches them. And they're infuriated. Madison is the more diplomatic of the two. He writes a letter to Senator Clay and says, I read your speech. It's very eloquent. But this tariff scheme that you're proposing here, uh, I think it's got some economic problems. It's, it, it runs counter to basically everything that we founded this nation on. And mm. he says, also, some of these expenditures that you're proposing, I think they're unconstitutional because they uh, these are not powers granted to the federal government. And uh, so, so Madison tries to, to soft convince Clay that he's gone off on the wrong path. Hmm. Jefferson reads the speech and is furious. <laughs> and Jefferson, uh, uh, Jefferson is less than six months from when he dies in 1825. Uh, so it's the last major act of his political career. Hmm. He writes Madison and says, we need to write all of our friends down in Richmond and Virginia and get them to pass a, re- a resolution declaring this law unconstitutional if it passes and rally other states to the same cause. Uh, basically revive the uh, uh, the doctrines that they used against the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798. 
So Mad uh, Madison is a recipient of all these letters from Jefferson that he's planning, and he drafts resolutions and basically says this thing is atrocious. It's a uh, a violation of every economic principle under our Constitution uh, that empowers the federal government at the expense of the states and of the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jefferson dies in, in 1825 without any real resolution of this. So you have over the course of the next several decades is back and forth between the Henry Clay faction and the Free Trade faction mm. for control of Congress. So I look at someone like Lighthizer or Pat Buchanan or uh, Michael Lind, all these uh, uh, latter day uh, Henry Clay American system people, and they're saying, well, we're the true way that uh, we're, we're the true American economic uh, uh, understanding. And I look at this, wait a minute. Your guy was denounced by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Uh, I mean, how closer to the founding can you get than that? Right, right. Well, that's it. So they're just kind of, uh, it's selective. Uh, selective history. Yeah, selective history. Exactly. exactly. Okay, so what changes when you have income tax? That's in 1913, yeah, yeah. right? So like that's exactly. the first time where now, so, so if we think about, the beginning, the very beginning, James Madison saying, okay, 5% yeah. uh, is going to be used, and this is going to be used for revenue for the government, for the, for the purposes yeah. of what we actually need. Yeah. Like, it's not, you know, we think about the government now, it's a completely different ballgame, yeah. right? Like this big, big state that just eats and eats and eats up, and then it prints when it doesn't have enough, and there's all kinds of things going on and trying to grab from every angle. But yeah. here it's kind of very very basic still and now we move to income tax so yeah. that changes things it's a huge disruption and you know i point this out to uh like all the people that are saying we need to revive the american system i ask them do they like income taxes <laughs> and every one of them says no that income taxes atrocious are too high and then you point out to them the reason we have an income tax today is because of the american system uh, and this is it's a fairly obscure part of our history. It gets into the weeds of legislation. Mm -hmm. uh, but because in, the American system, that means something specific. Yeah, the American system is the Henry Clay high tariff industrial policy, subsidize everything and pay for it with debt. Got it. Got it. And this system became politically entrenched in the late 19th century. Uh, again, for all the mechanisms of changing money and bribes and favors that you'd expect rent seeking, mm -hmm. run amok like notoriously corrupt rent-seeking. Uh, and every time that Congress would come up to say, hey, it's it's time to revise the tariff schedule again, uh, it's like the vultures descend on the Capitol building mm -hmm. to get all of their favors. And in 1909, President Taft, in a State of the Union message, that they didn't deliver him at the time, but he called for a revision to the tariff schedule, and all the vultures descend. Hmm. And this was after several decades of this problem becoming worse and worse and worse of every time they revise the tariff schedule, it's just a, 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 a horde of corruption centering on Washington, D.C. And it looks like this bill is going the exact same path. Uh, it's uh, uh, Taft had actually said we need to uh, maybe flush out some of the corrupt exchanges that existed in the old schedule. And instead they go the other direction. Uh, what they produce is something called the Payne-Aldrich Tariff. Uh, the senator behind that is Nelson Aldrich of Rhode Island. Uh, he's also one of the major architects of the Federal Reserve. So uh, you start to see the type of mentality that uh, oh, is the same oh, figures of that era. That's uh, all growing at uh -huh, the same time. Uh -huh. Exactly. Exactly. Uh -huh. So a few years later, he lays the groundwork for what becomes the Federal Reserve. But in 1909, uh -huh. he is the champion of the tariff bill. What's his name? Nelson Aldrich. Nelson Aldrich. Okay, sorry. Continue. Yeah, yeah and he, he looks like a robber baron villain with the, uh, I mean, the only thing that's missing in his, his pictures is a monocle and a top hat. Oh my gosh. Okay, <laughs> we'll put him on the screen. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, real, a real character of, of history, uh, but like the, the core of corruption. And he reaches so far into cutting deals that there's a public backlash against him. The backlash is so severe that he actually triggers members of his own party. He was a Republican, and they had control of the Senate at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, a small segment of his party threatened to bolt, and they said, we're going to link up with the free trade Democrats who were opposed to this tariff, and they were trying to get it all repealed. Wow. And that segment of the Republican Party plus the Democrat minority gave them enough votes to beat the tariff bill. 
if if the whole thing collapsed, if the party system collapsed. Uh, so what happened out of that is uh, some of the free traders said, well, the reason why we get protectionism is because every time we try to revise the revenue schedule, all the vultures descend on Washington, D.C., and they load up the bill with their favors. So we pass a revenue bill that ends up being a protection bill. Mm-hmm. So we need a new tax system. Another Pandora's box. Another Pandora's box. <laughs> oh, said, boy. Well, they figure, well, maybe we can finally defeat the tariff. Uh, there's a, uh, one person called it... Uh, We'll use the income tax, and it'll be the club that allows us to beat down the tariff. Hmm. Interesting. And he says, if we switch the revenue system to another source, then there's no longer a need to pass all these bills, and the tariff can go away. And our our problem solved. We flushed the corruption out of Washington. And do you think that was really, like, well-intentioned at the time? Uh, At least among some of them. Not everyone, I mean, because right. they're politicians. Right. But at least, at least among some of them, they thought, well, this is a new way to try it. So what happened in the middle of this this hectic, chaotic debate where part of the Republican Party is about to bolt on, on Aldrich, they start making deals. They start dr- striking deals. And one of the deals that emerges is the 16th Amendment, the Income Tax Amendment. And Aldrich finally says, to salvage my tariff bill, I'm going to let an amendment vote come forward he controlled the, the voting schedule of the chamber. Hmm. Uh, and then all the free traders, plus this resur- insurgent group of, uh, of Republicans, uh, had enough votes to carry the income tax amendment. And they passed this as like their consolation prize for letting Aldrich get his protective tariff. Wow. And then it's ratified four years later, and it's off to the races. Well, what they discover, <laughs> the income tax, again, the first income tax, they wanted it uh, the top rate to be between about 5 and 8%, and it only applied to the very, very wealthy. Right, which was, I think you said, like about, it would be uh, $13 million a exactly. year kind of thing, and you would be taxed 5 7%. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and like 90% of Americans, if not more, weren't even eligible to pay this income tax. Right. And that like five, five to seven, eight percent range would have been sufficient to make up the revenue that was lost because they repealed the tariff. But it was already a progressive income tax then. It was already progressive hmm. income tax, just a very, very small one that very, very focused on the on the wealthiest Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it seemed to be working all right first couple of years. Then the United States enters World War One. And they start to, uh, they have a much more pressing revenue need to fund the war machine and everything else associated with it. So they raised the income tax during the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the top marginal rates, they start to exceed 60, 70 percent. That's where you start getting a, a, a massive expansion of the income tax system. And that's to that same group? Mm-hmm. Does it trickle it, down to so other groups? Mostly on the rich still. It's not until after uh, uh, FDR is elected that right. they move it down they to the They start to move down, right. But uh, in, uh, hmm. in 1917, thereabouts, they start raising the income tax and they discover this thing is much more effective at raising revenue for the government than these tariffs we used to have ever were. So it's like off to the race of <laughs> politicians. You, you can see their, li- their, their eyes are lighting up. They're like, uh, we have found the, the money grail. source to do yeah. everything we want to do. So because of the tariff overreach that unleashed the, the 16th Amendment and gave us the income tax system, we stumbled backward into this behemoth of, of tax and spend that's plagued us ever since. And it gets even worse than that because all it took was another election to throw the free traders out. And then uh, uh, the protectionists come back and they say, well, we're going to keep the income tax system because right. it's bringing in all this of money. Course. But uh, since you don't need the tariff for revenue anymore, we can just jack up the rates to uh, protect everyone. So you got the worst of both worlds. you got a high income tax and a high protective tariff. Wow. And it's kind of basically off to the races ever since then. Well, this is something that I would like to do a podcast uh, with you on is kind of like I didn't realize that the income tax started in 1913, mm-hmm. and that's the same time Federal Reserve Act was also 1913, same year. right? Same year. And then you have World War One mm-hmm. right after that. So like there was some kind of thing going on at that time that I would like to understand better. It is a ratcheting tide of is a pro- tide of progressivism that just ratchets up further and further with all these different steps and tools that allowed policymakers and politicians to do more than they had ever been able to do up to that point in history. Mm-hmm. It broadened their power. And what do they do as politicians? They use that power to deliver favors to their constituents. And it's just like the rent-seeking free-for-all that flows through. You can debt finance now, 
with the Federal Reserve mechanisms mm-hmm. that have come back into play. Right. Remember, the Federal Reserve, we, the United States had been without a, a, a national bank for almost a century at that and point. And it wasn't even supposed to be a central bank at no. the beginning, right? No. It, it was not. They were supposed to be A lending mechanism different. to right. soften business cycles was the original intention. Mm-hmm. But now they say they're a central bank, and yes, everyone calls they, them the exactly, central bank because exactly. they act like a central bank. So Exactly. Wow. But then, you know, after that, too, then you think about... Um, FDR going mm-hmm. off the domestic gold standard, yep. 1933 yep. or 34. And then you have Nixon, 1971, international mm-hmm. gold standard. And now you have talks about CBDCs. <laughs> so it's kind of like... It's just a, a succession right. of expanding the powers of the government to interfere in economic activity. And you, you can trace it in one way or another all the way back to that 1789 bill that James Madison got taken off guard by. On wow. the tariff. Wow, that's incredible. So it's like the the history of the founding of America, it's almost as if, you know, and this is maybe pessimistic sounding, but that was like the high point. Those were like all of the ideals. <laughs> and the government's just grown and grown and grown ever since. <laughs> right, right. But at the beginning, at the very beginning, there was more resistance to right, that right. growth, right? Like yeah, it, it, You've had some small victories along the way where they've been able to turn back the tide. And weirdly, we even got one in the middle of the New Deal in 1934. Hmm. Uh, so the Secretary of State was a, a free trade Democrat that uh, was kind of friendly to the markets, uh, Cordell Hull. And he was tasked with unwinding the problems created by Smoot-Hawley uh, because, you know, he he arrives at the State Department and every other country in the world is at war with the United States economically because of this tariff system. And he's like, well, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, so he passed a reform through that basically stripped away part of Congress's uh, power. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, I remember reading that. And so, so what was the result of that? Act. Yeah. And and what it does is it says, well, we're going to shift this over to the State Department, and I'm going to send out my diplomats to undo the mess that you created, country by country, one at a time. Oh. Uh, so he, he actually does go to work on that, and they're able to, that's how we finally get out of Smoot-Hawley, because uh, Congress would never, even though it was a disaster and everyone recognized it was a disaster, they never vote to repeal it because that meant uh, rescinding the favors they had just given to their special interest constituents. All right, Phil. So what are the lessons that we can draw uh, with the kind of rhetoric that we can hear today? And actually, you know what? I'm yeah. going to read you a tweet sure. that I bookmarked earlier, which kind of, you know, a couple of them actually, which kind of represent the way that people think nowadays, you know, in light of everything <laughs> that we just discussed. Um, so this was, again, a Wall Street Journal opinion by Phil Graham and Donald J. Boudreau, and, yeah. and the title is Trump's trade war was a loser. And they say, by raising the prices of steel and aluminum, Trump's tariffs destroyed far more manufacturing jobs than they created. So that's the argument against tariffs. Um, but then we also have, and this uh, seems to be from a neocon kind of guy, um, Joey Manorino. And he says, ban the United Nations from operating in America. Okay, I might... I might agree with that. Maybe not. I don't know. But let's just say he's got he has yeah. the sentiment that I t- talked about at no, the very exactly. beginning, exactly. the anti-globalist exactly. sentiment. Yeah. So pull out of NATO and let the organization crumble. OK, maybe we can argue for that. Maybe we can yeah. have discussions about that, too. Then he says, cut off all foreign aid and only restore on a basis of what value do you provide us? OK, maybe he's talking about yeah. Russia, Ukraine, that whole debacle. And then he says this, place a 50% tariff on every import from every country and subsequently cut income taxes by at least 10%. Yeah. Just some of what our next president needs to do in his second term. Yeah. So how do you read that? So he's presenting it as a trade-off because he, he, it's, you know, the analogy I like to use, the Lord of the Rings, where uh, you have the scene in the movie, and it's also in the books, where uh, uh, that they obtain the ring of power, and there's a debate that takes place. The debate is, do we destroy this ring, or do we use it to our advantage? This is in The Fellowship, and it's the, in the first fellowship. film. It is, yes. Exactly. It the famous scene is, <laughs> and they actually try to steal the, 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 the ring from Frodo. Paramir. To yes. use it as a mm-hmm. weapon. Mm-hmm. And you see the exact same type of thing. Politics are like the ring of power. Uh, they're corrupting when you offer favors on the table. Uh, 
the vultures descend to, to claim them. And there's there, there's no way of getting around that. I mean, it's sown into the nature of man, as James Madison said. Mm. Uh, trying to take those tools and just weaponize them against the other side, which is what we're seeing in this tariff revivalism. Uh, they're like, well, the left has meddled in the economy for decades. Uh, we should do it too. We should seize the ring and use it for good. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Seize the ring and, u- and use it for good. And every time that this has occurred in history, you actually end up with that scenario that occurred in the 1920s and 1930s. You get the worst of both worlds. You get not only the old abuses that you were trying to fight against, you get the new abuses simultaneous. So, okay, if we keep on that analogy, yeah. and I've thought about this a lot because I love it. It's one of my, my favorite um, series and, and one of the best stories of all time, I think. Um, what does it mean to you to destroy that ring of power? Like, what is what is the symbol there? If that ring is basically like seizing it for yourself and being able to wield it in whichever way you see fit, uh, by going to destroy the ring, what does that mean? Like, yeah. that, what is that solution that's presented there? You need to go back to constitutional government, constitutional constraint. What was originally intended was not a massive protective tariff regime and a massive income tax re- regime. It was a very limited federal government that had minimal, if any, uh, powers to intervene in free, open commerce and economic exchange. Mm-hmm. The very same free, open commerce and economic exchange we declared was the cause, one of the major causes of the Declaration of Independence, because King George had violated that. Uh, so it's constitutional constraints on the use of power to interfere in the economy, to interfere in, in personal human liberty. Uh, they go hand in hand. And as soon as you start chipping away at the economic uh, side of things, uh, you know, others follow. Uh, right. I, and, of her. and this is one thing that I'm really learning uh, by osmosis, you know, in speaking with you and so many other people at AIR and elsewhere in the kind of world of economics and liberty is that you can't uh, you can't unlink the two things, no, you know, no, liberty you and, and f- uh, basically a free economy. And, and economic and freedom. You can't separate them. We're seeing this all them. over the place right now. All this evidence come out of the federal government leaning on private sector companies to do censorship on its behalf. Mm. Uh, the erosion of free speech is tied to the economic leverage and the regulatory leverage that the federal government has placed on several companies. And fortunately, we still have some courts that are slapping them down for it. Right. But, fortunately. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But it, it's scary. And you you actually start to see the intertwined nature of economic activity and other uh, other rights that uh, are supposed to be at the heart of our constitutional system. Okay. So, I mean, this is one of the things that we hear, you know, for liberty people who are really pro-constitution and pro yeah. the values of America's founding, right? It's like, we need to go back to something like that. We need to figure out how to get that again. But like, do you think that it's even possible now? I mean, and I know that this is pessimistic, but I mean, is there... Stranger things have happened in human history. Uh, I think we can also learn from the mistakes that were made uh, to to at least not repeat them. Mm. And generally that means when when the ring is presented to you to use against the other side, don't use it. No, it needs to be cast into the fire. It needs to be uh, sent off to Mount Doom. Right, right. That's exactly it. I think that's so true. Uh, Somebody asked me a question one time. Um, They said, if you had a magic wand and you could fix the world, what would you do? And I was like, I wouldn't want it. I don't. Right. I don't, don't want, want the that. <laughs> don't want the power. Yeah, yeah, and it and it's rare though, and it's rare. But it seems like the founding fathers they had that idea, like they knew, and that was they part of the had DNA. The philosophical understanding of it, right? And even though they experienced, I mean, Madison's own tariff bill succumbed to the very same problem he diagnosed, but he at least had the sense to realize that this was a problem. Right. It took him by surprise. Him and by he surprise, was like, yeah. OK, well, so maybe even James Madison, someone who who sat for hours into the evening thinking about this exact problem, gets caught by surprise for it. I mean, what what does that mean for the rest of us? Right. And so, OK, so now are we at a point where like maybe kind of on a last thought, is there anybody who is still fighting for kind of free trade and, yeah. you know, yeah. um, economic liberalism? Let's say. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are voices. I say the majority of the econ profession, uh, whether they're left, right or anything in between, there Mm -hmm. are very, very few protectionists that are uh, that have actually studied economics. Right. Uh, So the practitioners 
uh, that look at trade and exchange for a living are overwhelmingly free trade. Yeah. And there, so that's a glimmer of hope there, at least on the intellectual side. Yeah. Now, the, now the flip side is just like in 1930, other parts of society ignored the economists because uh, there's a, a giant economist petition against the Smoot-Hawley bill that says, no, this is going to wreck the world economy. Hmm. Gave them the exact warning. Uh, so sometimes it's going to, it's like shouting into the wind and, and you don't know if anyone hears you. Right. But uh, the fact that the profession has remained uh, committed to free trade uh, and done so on an intellectual basis, I think is encouraging. Uh, I just uh, urge others to listen to that uh, part of the profession because they, you know, they know what they're talking about. They've looked at the history. They understand uh, why these mistakes were mistakes in the past, and they understand uh, why repeating them is not going to deliver all of the promises that uh, politicians, whether they're on the left or right, say come from tariffs. <laughs> <laughs> 